Isn't that the heart that we would all love to have? This, this heart that is rejoicing in the Lord today. It knows that we will rejoice tomorrow. It knows the day after we will still have joy. The week after we will still have joy in the Lord. Until we are face to face with the Lord, we will have joy in the Lord. In a way of speaking, everything up until this point has really been introductory material. Paul is sort of getting himself going. He's updated the Philippians about his status here, about the gospel here in Rome and what's going on with him in the prison. He has told them about how he prays for them and what joy they bring to his heart. He's given them some information about what's going on with the church there in Rome. And now he's going to make this most profound of statements and then this is going to kick off everything he has to say from that point on. So we remember where we are last time. Paul was talking to us about how God doesn't just overcome these situations in his life. He doesn't just take the adversities that Paul faces and overcomes them, but he actually takes them and flips them on their head and uses them for the furtherance of the gospel. Three examples that Paul gives. First of all, he is in prison. He is in chains, and the very chains that he wears don't restrict the gospel. They haven't chained up the gospel or put the gospel in prison. In fact, these chains have given Paul a pulpit from which to preach the gospel to many who would never have heard otherwise. There are now believers in the household of the Caesar Nero. There are believers among the Praetorian Guard, and all of this is because of the chains that Paul wears. Secondly, Paul's suffering, Paul's chains for the gospel, have emboldened other believers there in the church in Rome to be more bold and more outgoing in their preaching of the gospel. Perhaps they were somewhat timid before, but now they see the grace that Paul receives by being in prison for the gospel, and that has emboldened them, knowing that God will grace them with the same gift that He graces with Paul as Paul suffers well for Christ. Thirdly, there are others that are preaching the gospel there in Rome, but they have some ulterior motives. Paul doesn't explain exactly why, but for some reason they are preaching the gospel for the purpose of hurting Paul. There appears to be some factions there among the church in Rome. Some of the people in the church like Paul. Others don't seem to like Paul too much. And perhaps while he's in prison, they see this as their opportunity to sort of get one up on Paul. If they can bring more people into their clique or their group, then all the better for them. And so they're preaching the gospel. Paul says it's the true, accurate gospel, but they're doing it for false motives. And Paul says, so what? Who cares? The gospel is still being preached, and for that I rejoice. And that brings us all up here to verse 18. So let's go look this morning. We're going to begin from verse 18, and we're going to look down through that verse 21 that all of us are certainly at least familiar with. Let's read these together to begin with. To begin with, you probably will notice that our Bibles, or at least mine, yours probably is the same. Does your Bible have these little subheadings? If it has subheadings, then you might might notice that the subheading that we begin at actually starts halfway through a verse. Verse 18 is divided a little bit awkwardly. And so the passage that we're going to look at this morning begins at the end, the last phrase of verse 18, and then continues on into verse 19. So starting from the end of verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we begin by noticing, as we just said, that verse 18 divides up into one thought and and then to the next thought. The end of verse 18, Paul summarizes what he has just said about the adversity that he faces and how Paul and how God is using that adversity for the purpose of the gospel. And he says, in this I rejoice. And then if you notice, he changes verb tenses and he says, I will rejoice. So he's rejoicing now and he will continue to rejoice. He will rejoice. What he will, will rejoice about, he says, is that the name of Jesus Christ will be honored. It will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And so this causes him to continue rejoicing. We just have to look at the life of Paul and just, isn't that the heart that we would all love to have? This, this heart that is rejoicing in the Lord today. It knows that we will rejoice tomorrow. It knows the day after we will still have joy. The week after we will still have joy in the Lord. Until we are face to face with the Lord, we will have joy in the Lord. This was Paul's heart. This was his, his attitude, his outlook. So he rejoices now. He will rejoice. Verse 19, the reason is, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The this there is the situation that he's in, this situation in which he's in prison, he's chained to these Roman guards, he doesn't have the freedom to leave and preach the gospel as he would like. But in the meantime, there are these other Roman Christians preaching the gospel. Some of them are doing it from false motives. This whole situation, this ugly situation that he's in, Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he knows, he says that through your prayers and through the help of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, What does he mean by deliverance? We'll get to that in just a moment, but we'll take that word and just sort of set it aside, and we'll talk in a moment about what Paul means by by deliverance. First, let's look at a couple other things that he says. First of all, he says there's two things. There's two things that the Lord is going to use in order to bring about this deliverance that he's going to talk about. And those two things are, first of all, the prayers, through your prayers, and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So two things, the prayers of the Philippian believers and the presence and the activity and the work of the Spirit, those two things God's going to use together in order to bring about good out of a very bad situation. Paul is in a situation that's very negative, that's very bad, that's hostile to him. And God's going to take that that bad situation. He's going to use it for good in Paul's life and for the furtherance of the gospel. And in order to do that, God's going to use two things. He's going to use the prayers of the Philippian believers and he's going to work through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit within Paul. So here Paul is talking about God overcoming negative circumstances to bring about good in his life. Can you think of another place where Paul also talks about God taking negative situations in our life and using them for good. Anybody think of a place where Paul says that? Yeah, Joseph, Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Excellent example. Uh, Not the one I was thinking of, but excellent example. There's a place where Paul says much the same thing. says, God takes bad things in our life and He works them for good. Anybody know where Paul says that? Romans? 8 verse 28. We're all familiar with that. But I know that for those who are called according to His purpose, God works all things together for our good. Does anybody know the context in which Paul says that? Let's flip over 
if you don't mind, let's flip over to Romans chapter 8 and let's look at the context in which Paul says essentially the same thing. That God is going to take negative things in our life and He will use them for our good. Romans 8 and verse 28 is where he says this. But let's look back to the beginning of that paragraph to just get the flow of the context in which Paul says these words. Beginning from verse 26, which is the beginning of that paragraph, Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray, or how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And all of that works itself out as we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So do you see the parallel there? Do you see how in both instances Paul is saying there is this God who doesn't isn't just powerful enough to overcome evil in our life, but He takes evil and He uses it for good in our life. And in both instances, Paul says God does it the same way. Through prayer of the believers and through the power of the Spirit. In this instance, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's talking about how when we pray, we're not even sure what to pray for. And oftentimes, that's the role of the Spirit. The Spirit comes along and intercedes for us and takes our prayers, which oftentimes might have selfish motives, might have a certain nearsightedness to it. We might be praying even for the wrong thing. And the Spirit comes along and hears that and modifies it and even changes it and takes that to the ears of God so that by the time the prayer is then lifted to God, it has been sanctified to be a prayer that is genuinely for our good. We might be praying for a deliverance from, from some situation in, a, in another believer's life. And the Spirit hears that and He says, well, I understand, but God has that believer in that situation and He's using that for His ultimate good. So then the Spirit takes that prayer to the ears of the Lord and by that time it's been sanctified and taken to His ears. So the same thing is happening here. The prayer of the believer and the power of the Spirit, both of those together are what God uses to take the evil in our life and to work it together for good. So that tells us a couple of things. First of all, that tells us of the necessity of the Spirit in our prayers. Our prayers are worthless without the Spirit. Without the activity of the Holy Spirit, our prayers are just like talking to the walls and talking to the ceiling. We need the Spirit active in our prayers. We need Him to intercede for us. Otherwise, our prayers are so limited, so nearsighted, so blinded, that they're of little or no good to God's kingdom. And so we need the activity of the Spirit. We need His empowerment as we pray. That is a Spirit activity that we are doing. So first of all, we see the necessity of the Spirit in our prayers. Secondly, we also see the necessity of praying for other believers, specifically praying for their spiritual benefit. Now, we are oftentimes good about praying for others for their physical needs and all that is good, praying for healing, praying for deliverances from sicknesses, praying for a new job to come along, all the physical, temporal needs of this life, and we are to do that. But this reminds us of the absolute importance to pray for other believers for their spiritual needs because what Paul is saying here, Paul is saying, I know something is going to happen and what I know is going to happen is based on your prayers. Have you thought about that? That Paul says, I know this is going to work out in a certain way, but it's also contingent on your prayers. 
Paul knows that God's going to do something, but he also knows that the believers in Philippi need to pray for it. So we as the family of God, we must be in the habit of praying for one another spiritually, praying for one another's resistance to temptation, praying for one another's growth in the Word, praying that we would, we would be drawn to the Word, praying that our prayer life would be vibrant and regular, praying that we would be resistant to the temptations that we face throughout the day and throughout the week. We must, as the family of God, we must be engaged in that because this is what Paul says God uses to bring about those, those times in which evil in our life, God uses them for good. So he says, through your prayers and through the help or the providence or the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now we're still going to skip over that word deliverance. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And we'll see, I think, in a few minutes clearly what Paul means by deliverance. By the way, the word translated deliverance there is the same word for salvation. So there's a little bit of a question, you know, is Paul, is he talking about deliverance from prison? Is he talking about his salvation? What's Paul talking about here? We'll come back to that. Now, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. So a couple of words we need to look at there. You might say, why do we keep talking about words? Because the scriptures come to us in words. And so it's important to understand what the Spirit means by these words that He gives to us that are written down in the Word of God. So a couple of words for us to look at here. First is the word hope. And the reason we, that we want to look at this is because typically when we use the word hope today, we oftentimes mean something a little bit different than most of the time we see this in the Scriptures. When we speak of hope today, we speak of a, a wishful desire, something that we wish comes about, and we really have little or no control over it. It's just a wish that we have. Like, I hope the Chiefs win the Super Bowl or the 49ers win the Super Bowl, right? We have really no control over that, but it's a, it's a hope, it's a desire that we have. And we express that by saying, I hope that Kansas City wins the Super Bowl or whatever it may be. Or I hope that we have a couple of weeks of dry weather for a while. It's expressing a desire that we hope comes about. Or we have this wish that comes about. That's typically how we use the word. But when we see that word in the scriptures, it doesn't mean this desire that we hope comes about that we really don't have any control over. What the biblical writers mean is they are expressing a certainty of what they are absolutely convinced will happen. And that certainty has to do with their salvation. So when the biblical writers talk about hope, they're not saying we, we desire that God would save us. They are expressing a certainty that their salvation or their deliverance will come. So just take a look in your notes here, just uh, uh, Hebrews 6.11, just so that we're all together on this, know that I'm just not making this up. From Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, we read this, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, if hope there means this wishful desire, then that doesn't make any sense. How do you have full assurance of some wishful desire? That doesn't make any sense. But if hope means a certainty that my salvation will come, then this makes, this makes perfect sense because then we have the full assurance of that certainty that my salvation will come. So when Paul says, it is my Eager expectation and hope. He's kind of repeating himself there. He's got this eager expectation and he's got this certainty 
that the, the salvation that God has promised him will come. It is my eager desire, or it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. And let's talk for just a minute about that word ashamed, because when we think about the word ashamed or shame, we tend to think about embarrassment. Maybe something that we did that we shouldn't have done, something about us that people found out about that we wish that they didn't know, or there's some sort of embarrassing thing, and there's this shame, maybe some wrong thing that we did, or maybe some embarrassing moment, and so we feel this shame. And that's not the way that Paul is is using this word, and that's typically not the, the way that the Bible uses this word. The word shame, as we usually find it in the Bible, doesn't mean a timidity or an embarrassment. Instead, it has to do with being found to have believed in something that's wrong. Falling for a hoax. Getting taken in by a false gospel, so to speak. If you are found to be believing in a God that turned out to be false, that's what the Bible usually means by shame. If you are found to be believing or trusting in some form of deliverance that turned out to be just made up, then that's what the biblical writers usually mean by shame. Uh, if you even think about the word, the word shame, think about the word shame and sham. You know what sham means? Sham is like, you know, people fall for this hoax or people fall for some marketing scheme or uh, you know, you get the telemarketers that call and they, and they make, sometimes people fall for these shams. In fact, that's the root of the word shame. The word shame came from the word sham. So if someone believed in a sham, they were a shame. And then from that came ashamed. And so just take a look at your notes and there's a couple places where we see this really clearly. Psalm 22 verse 5, To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. has nothing to do with being embarrassed there. It has to do with the fact that they believed in something that was not found out to be false. They believed in something that was found out to be reliable and trustworthy. Or Romans chapter 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, right? So Paul, I used to think that Paul was saying, I'm not embarrassed of the gospel. I'm not embarrassed about the gospel because the gospel turns out to be the power of God for salvation. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes in it. Therefore, I am not found to be believing in something that's powerless or something that's not true. I am not put to shame by believing upon a sham. I am found to be believing upon that which is true and reliable and trustworthy. Why? Because it is the power of God to save everyone who believes it. Or what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. So Paul's not saying that, that I'm not embarrassed for this, for this gospel that I believed in. What he's saying is, I absolutely believe and I'm convinced that there will be no showing that I have believed something that is untrustable. In fact, I will be shown to be just the opposite. I will be shown to have believed upon that which is ultimately trustworthy. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.